Hey, Real Talker, whether you bike to work and play every single day or whether the thought of bike lanes, talk of investment in cycling infrastructure drives you nuts, I guarantee you're going to take something valuable from this Real Talk Roundtable on urban cycling and design. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I want to welcome you to this episode of Real Talk. We're talking urban cycling and design today. Yeah, that's right. Of all of the controversial things that this show will touch, if anything will bite off and chew on, bike lanes might be one of the subjects that get people going the most. Those that champion bike lanes can present compelling reasons why they make so much sense for the the world's most reputable and most well-designed cities to feature, to invest in. And, And those that hate bike lanes, well, they just hate them and sometimes they can tell you why and then sometimes they're not quite sure but they've heard something about Edmonton that city in Alberta Canada spending a hundred million dollars on bike lanes and well they just don't think it makes sense so we're going to dig into it today with with three advocates people who well do I say walk the talk or push the pedals or you get it we're going to be talking about why it makes sense for cities to pay attention to where trends are going in transportation we're going to talk about keeping our perspective on investing in infrastructure and of course you can have your say we'll be looking to our live tuning audience today on YouTube joining us every single morning as we present this week's edition of the Real Talk Roundtable. We're grateful for the support of our presenting sponsor on this episode. It's our friends at Rello. If you've been dreaming about starting a new career, maybe being your own boss, running a thriving business, and leaving cubicle life behind, if you want all that plus unlimited earning potential, a career in real estate might be your perfect match. You can get started today by enrolling with Rello. That's R-E-L-O. Rello's Alberta's top real estate school, and they'll support you every step of the way from studying for your exam to getting your license and beyond. Plus, with Rello, you can study 100% online on your own schedule. And right now, a great deal for Real Talkers. You can save 20% off any Rello course with the code REALTALK. All one word. That's REALTALK. 20% off at Rello.ca. Well, we especially love it when our Real Talk Roundtable brings people together in person. That's kind of the whole idea of it, to gather over coffees. I mean, last week over beers, if we're being honest. But it's coffees and waters today to get people looking into each other's eyes and sharing ideas and building off each other's thoughts. And, and, and this week, it's a special opportunity because we've got a guy that's kind of a bit of a big deal in the cycling world, uh, halfway around the world from where he calls home, just about to leave on a flight from Edmonton. But we're so grateful that Chris Bruntlett's agreed to hang out with us literally right before he goes to the airport. Chris is marketing manager at the Dutch Cycling Embassy, a public-private partnership that represents the best knowledge, experience, and experts from the Netherlands. Uh, He's co-authored a couple of books using his passion to share lessons for global cities wishing to follow their footsteps and become better places to live, work, and, of course, 
cycle chris it's awesome to have you joining us this morning thanks for being here no thanks for having me i'm really glad we could squeeze this in before i uh yeah hop in an uber to the airport yeah you bet well we're we're, we're gonna ask you what's so special about the the netherlands uh, approach to cycling and urban design and then maybe ask you about some of the other cities around the world plus we'll ask for your assessment of edmonton of course now my understanding is danielle sonef who's also joining us in studio had a pretty big part to do with bringing Chris to town, right? Daniel's involved with MADE, which is Media Design Architecture Edmonton. Uh, you guys just wrapped up Design Week. We did, yeah. So the talk last night was part of the after-after party for Design Week. Oh, great. Love yeah. it. The after-after party. Well yeah, done. I we just want to keep it going. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Stephen Rates is rounding out our panel. Stephen, it's great to have you joining us in studio, a registered professional planner. Stephen's a law student at the U of A and also an improviser with Rapid Fire Theater in Edmonton. Nope, no pressure on the round table. Steven's been volunteering on the board of Paths for People for the last five years or so, uh, and he chaired the organization uh, for the past three. It's great to have you here. Very excited to be here. Excited to talk about this kind of stuff and uh, recontextualize that $100 million. It's not just for bike claims, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. 100% we'll yeah. get to that. And, yeah. and basically, we're just going to turn the three of you loose and, mm-hmm. and just have some fun talking about this. I, I think a lot of people have heard of Paths for People, but maybe they don't know what it's all about. Absolutely, yeah. So Paths for People is a nonprofit based in Edmonton that's uh, been in existence since about 2015. It really came to the fore around the downtown bike network getting implemented. And when that was done, uh, I think the organization kind of realized there is so much more work to do in Edmonton. So we uh, kept on moving forward, kept on focusing on different projects that would make for safer, more livable streets across Edmonton, whether that's speed limits, better street design, and much, much more. So we just exist to do advocacy and do community programming and serve Edmontonians. Okay, if people want to click around and, uh, you know, while they're listening to this or watching this, they can check out pathsforpeople.org. Chris, this is your first time in Edmonton, yeah? It is. First yeah. time in Alberta? No, I have visited uh, Calgary on a couple of occasions. Okay, so when you you visit a new city or a city new to you, um, what are some of the things that you pay attention to? What do you look for right away? Yeah, it's, uh, of course, it's the the safety and comfort of the streets, the infrastructure that's on the ground there. But I think, for me, it's about the indicator species. What are the types of people, the diversity of people that are using the public realm? Is it just uh, the fit, able-bodied white men, or is it... Do you see a lot of children, a lot of elderly, a lot of people with disabilities? Uh, And these are all things that, yeah, safe, comfortable, high-quality infrastructure uh, can support uh, versus, yeah, the alternative, which is uh, a very hostile, dangerous realm that's completely dominated by cars. Has that been the story with, with like, basically every city over the past hundred years, or have there been some, maybe particularly in Europe, is my guess, uh, that that have sort of uh, valued cycling infrastructure or alternative transportation infrastructure for quite some time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not an exaggeration to say that virtually every city after the Second World War built itself around the car, even Dutch cities, even uh, uh, cities across Europe, which are now considered leaders in this uh, in this field. Uh, but there was a recognition, yeah, I think very, very early on in the 70s and 80s that that was a dead end in terms of the livability of the city, in terms of, of the economic prosperity of the city, in terms of the inclusion of the residents. And, and so uh, we always hold the Netherlands up as a, a model because they made that recognition fairly early. But now we're seeing other global cities, uh, historically more car-dominated places in North America, 
that are coming to the same realization and starting their own journey, albeit uh, decades later than, than those early adopters, if you will. Okay. People, people can also check out DutchCycling.nl if they want to learn more about the Dutch Cycling Embassy and what you're doing. And of, of course, we'll dig into this uh, as the roundtable progresses. Uh, Daniel, how would you assess, uh, I mean, let's, let's talk about, we have an, a Western Canadian audience. There's going to be people listening from across the province of Alberta. Um, and, and I don't want to ignore any city, but we can't talk about them all. Uh, in, in the Western part of this country or in the province of Alberta, what, what city or what community would you say is doing an especially good job if there is one? Uh, and, and, and are there cities that, that maybe should face a little pressure for, for not investing as much as you think they should in what we're talking about? Hmm, that's a tough question because I don't want to pit anyone against each other, but I will. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that all cities really need to consider this as one of the biggest actions that they can take against fighting climate change. Active mobility, getting cars off the street, getting people onto soft mobility modes, whether that's e-bikes, scooters, walking, anything like that. That's a, that's a thing that we really need to push towards. Um, I, we were having a conversation about Vancouver uh, yesterday. They've made some strides, um, but definitely, you know, there were some big plans that didn't necessarily happen. And I think that's a little bit of um, the tone of what's happening potentially around the discussion of bike lanes right now. We have these big, big plans that's let's try to get to these utopias. Uh, and then we, we kind of dial it back, dial it back sometimes in a reasonable manner, but more often than not, it's a little bit of a, Oh, this was too bad because we were so close to being almost there to it being great. And we just took a step back. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's get to the hundred million dollars because yeah. <laughs> everybody's talking about the hundred million dollars that Edmonton's investing. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I find that it's, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, people can check out Shifter, uh, a channel on YouTube that's got a, a, a great story, uh, a great video on quote, this northern city that's spending $100 million to improve cycling, wondering, can your city too? And they've done such a good job with their video, which, which has you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of views, which is great, but it celebrates what Edmonton's doing. <laughs> Not everybody's celebrating the $100 million, Stephen. Yeah, you know, there is some consternation out in the community about that number, but it's so important to realize what that number does and put that number in context. And so right off the top, I was saying, well, it's not just about bike lanes. It's about providing for greater shared use paths, better intersection design, uh, bike lanes in some areas where we have the cycling numbers either now or in the near term. Um, but yeah, not necessarily $100 million for bike lanes on every street in Edmonton. And to realize what that does across Edmonton, when administration was bringing forward the bike plan and determining like, how much is this actually going to cost? Uh, if council wanted to get it done within basically one budget cycle, it was going to cost double that. So we're not going to see the whole network be built out across the city, uh, but we're going to see key components. And I really like Chris's talk yesterday of where we should be focusing on uh, providing cycling infrastructure. And so it's not about a entire grid across the city. It's about how do we provide better uh, neighborhood connections so people can make some of those more uh, in the day trips caregiver trips uh, easier um, and so we provide at least another option for folks to get around. Um, and it's so important to put 100 million in context as well, uh, because that's like just a little under one overpass at 50th Street. That's one-tenth of the cost of expanding the Yellowhead Highway. So it's important to line that number up against different infrastructure projects, realize how distributed that's going to be and how it's not also going to get us all the way. And it's not going to be for sure 
bike lanes everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Also, I'm going to wager a guess that that Yellowhead expansion is going to go way over a billion dollars or whatever they have Who's to pay. Who's to say right the now. way so things you, are going? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not cheering for that. I yeah, hope that's yeah. not the case, but it probably is going to be. So, so how do you evaluate? I mean, how, do, you, do you need to sell something like this, Chris, to the public? I, can I just say I see a lot of people that, that you know, that they'll almost set up their lawn chairs cheering against bike lanes. They want to sit there and be able to yeah. prove that nobody's using them. And, and, and I've always thought it's kind of interesting to criticize the fact that very few people or relatively few people are cycling in the city when there's not the infrastructure for them to use to get them into cycling in the city. It's one yeah. of these, if you build it, they will come things, right? Exactly. Yeah. And this is the point that's often made is we're building infrastructure for people that aren't currently cycling. Uh, and so they're not using the streets because they don't feel safe enough to do so. Uh, we're building a bridge for uh, people to cross the river. Uh, we don't justify the construction of that bridge based on the number of people swimming across the river. <laughs> sure. uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, one of the messages of my talk last night was uh, we don't need to talk about bike lanes. Uh, this is uh, an infrastructure plan, uh, but we need to talk about or, or tell a story about what these bike lanes enable. They allow children to cycle safely to school in the morning. They allow uh, families to uh, go out for dinner in the evening, go to community centers, uh, to participate in society uh, without the, uh, the prohibitive cost of owning and operating an automobile. And uh, well, we, we crunched the numbers last night and it's almost $13,000 Canadian per year when you take all the costs of car ownership into consideration, maintenance, fuel, depreciation, uh, gasoline, et cetera. So the more we can do to enable families in particular to perhaps go from two to one car or a one car household to go to zero car, that's a, a, a tax break, uh, almost a third of their income potentially in their pocket, simply providing them, providing them low cost alternative means of transportation. Daniel, how much of design is, is, is shaping people's habits uh, versus reflecting or responding to their habits? Uh, it's a good question. And I would say, especially in relation to the bike lanes, um, it's definitely doing both. We, we're seeing, so I live in Garneau. Um, my children go to school at Garneau. And this year, we've seen a huge uptake in people riding their bike to school. Can I just, for people that don't know the city, yes. Garneau is this fabulous neighborhood right by the University of Alberta, yeah. kind of a heritage neighborhood. Would you care? It's pretty walkable. Pretty walkable, um, getting denser. Uh, we're, we're adding a lot of density there. Um, Do you think that's a good thing? Uh, absolutely. Just want to make sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm an infill home builder on the side, so yes. Oh, are you? <laughs> yes. Oh, cool. What's your company? You got to uh, plug it. Art House Residential. So okay. we do um, all... Um, we don't build single family homes. We do all of the missing middle stuff. Um, net zero, net zero ready. So check really? Out. Yeah. Okay. People can check out arthouseresidential.ca. Great yes. website, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. No, yeah. We, uh, we definitely, this is what our kind of dream for the city is, is that everybody can ride um, their, their bike to work, to the grocery store, to school. Um, I have a long tail cargo bike. I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old. They bike to school. I get to put my daughter in front of me and bike ride to school you can give her little hugs along the way it's it's interesting when you when you do that you see people's reaction to that and they're like oh this is this is so sweet my kids in the back seat and I can't touch them um it's uh it's a great way to interact with your kids have a chat about school their day that kind of stuff um and they get a bit of of active um 
activity before they go. I'm not answering your question though. Um, <laughs> the uh, the roundtable often meanders, just, which yeah, is totally fine. Digress, but um, the the design component is is really interesting. So Garneau just went through a neighborhood renewal, and I actually before our chat last night, I took Chris over to an intersection right in front of Sugar Bowl on 88th Ave and 110th Street, and I was like, let's have a look at this because ride this intersection every day. And what it's really doing is um, where the Garneau neighborhood renewal ran into the U of A, they basically just have this no man's land. And Stephen, I took you there a couple yeah. of months ago yeah. and I was like, this is a design that is, uh, you know, like I said, kind of a little bit less than halfway there. And it's encouraging people to act what's currently illegally. And it's a super well-used path but there's this kind of downfall at the intersection where nobody really knows what to do, how to operate. And it's creating a lot of friction. And these intersections, the design of them, you know, it's, it's something that we haven't quite gotten there yet. And I'm really hoping we're going to see a lot of investment in the, in the $100 million. Yeah, absolutely. And if I can add on that, the point you brought up right off the bat of uh, like riding to school with your kids. Uh, like, that is not like a new thing, like the activity of parents riding bikes with their kids. Like I grew up in Leduc. I have wonderful memories of riding bikes with my dad around Leduc, but it was never for like a purpose outside of recreation. Right. And so the design choices that we can make can take that fun activity that we're just, you know, getting to go out for a fun bike ride and make it utilitarian. I'm like all about this kind of perspective of like, let's just make it useful for people. And it's all those design choices that will make it reasonable for a commute to school rather than just a uh, rip around town for a good time. The, yeah. the cycle network in Leduc is like great. They've got shared use paths all over the place, but the design choices mean that they don't necessarily connect to those destinations super easily. And so it isn't used for that utilitarian purpose. And so it's really about just changing some of those design uh, choices at those key intersections, at those key destinations Absolutely. to make the option available. It's not about getting everybody to do the same thing. It's just about making Making the option available to folks. Yeah, it's enabling it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing to kind of bring up about this idea of bike lanes just being for bikes. Again, in Garneau, there's um, just at White Ave, there's a seniors living facility. And one of the things that you see there the most is the folks um, that have mobility aids using the bike lanes because, especially in the winter, because they get plowed. Mm -hmm. And the we we have to shovel our own sidewalks, and so when people get to a um, an alleyway and there's the giant hump of snow, they can't get over it. So they use the bike lanes. It's it's not just enabling bikes; it's enabling all forms of mobility outside of a car. Yeah, and then I've seen even I don't know if this is a red herring, maybe, but sort of the divisive. Have you seen? Because I think there's obviously different plows or or clearing vehicles that they'll use to clear a bike lane versus a street, and people see that the bike lane's been cleared, but the street hasn't been cleared of snow and then it pits drivers against cyclists and i always want to point out that like you know a lot of cyclists probably also own vehicles a lot of driver car people in cars are also pedestrians at times or mm -hmm. cycling with their kids this doesn't have to be a a war right i mean everybody it seems like people are planting flags and in their own camps and maybe i'm over sensationalizing this chris am i or is this like a tale the as old as time yeah, well, road space in particular is is political, and it's uh, when you start talking about reallocating road space, when you start start talking about shifting away from a mode of transportation that's enjoyed immense privilege for the past several decades, um, people get very irrational. They get very emotional. 
the cliche being that, yeah, when you're accustomed to privilege, any shift towards equality feels like oppression. And, and car drivers have had that privilege for such a long period of time. And now we're rebalancing the scales just a tiny little bit. The, the $100 million uh, that's allocated is less than one half of 1% of the roads budget. Uh, and uh, people are getting all uh, up in arms about it. But I think it's important to put that outrage into context because it's not necessarily representative of the larger community. And if I can add here, like, it's not even that this choice is going to disadvantage, like, car drivers. At the end of the day, we have a transportation system that's meant to serve people. And so people need options to get around. Right now, we've just built a system that compels and forces a lot of people to drive everywhere because that's the only reasonable choice. And so when we make these changes to investment patterns to diversify the kind of options that are available, ultimately that's going to serve people trying to get around better at the end of the day because not everybody's trapped in their cars. Not There's not this congestion that's created. And so, yeah, it's it's not like we're just people like trying to get around. And so let's <laughs> let's try to do that better instead of trying to focus on a tool to get around. And I, that's why I really yeah. loved your talk. Like, yeah. like at the end, it was, it's not just about bikes. Yeah. Like there's so yeah. much more going on here. And I often end my talk with the point, and I didn't last night and I should have, the Netherlands actually is a driver's paradise as well as a cyclist paradise. Waze regularly finds it the most satisfying place in the world to drive an automobile. Isn't the Netherlands just paradise, period? Well, you know, it does have its own challenges, but <laughs> but it, I think, shows that it's not win-lose. It's not black and white. If you give people choices, more space-efficient choices uh, for short journeys within their neighborhoods and their communities, you free up precious road space for people who want to drive, who people who need to drive, and there's really low levels of traffic congestion in Dutch cities because of the number of people uh, that are using other forms of transportation. So this can be uh, a win-win if we get the mobility mix right and we commit to the long-term vision of providing those networks on the ground to give people those choices. That's uh, Chris Bruntlett, uh, Stephen Rates Bohorium, and Daniel Sonoff in our Real Talk Roundtable. More in just a quick second. Uh, before we go any further, we wanted to give a shout out to first responders right now and let you know that our friends at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge so appreciate you. In times of need, you're the first ones to respond and they want to be the first to say thank you, to express their gratitude, and to encourage first responders to take a well-deserved break. The Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge is pleased to offer a special room rate exclusively for first responders this fall and winter. You can book before October 31st for stays between now and April of 2024. Okay, book before October 31st for stays between now and April 2024. Rooms are starting at $199 per night. They're going to take 20% off all your dining, 25% off spa services. There's nothing like the spa at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. And plus, 20% off Sundog tour experiences as well, including transportation to Jasper and wildlife tours. To learn more, check out the link in the show notes on the podcast or on YouTube, or just give them a call at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge and tell them that you're looking for the first responders appreciation rate. Thanks for everything that you do. Hey, all this talk about going green, sustainable lifestyles, design. How do we not remind you how proud we are to partner with Kubi Renewable Energy? This is Western Canada's busiest solar installer, and they've got reason for optimism moving forward. You know, almost 80% of the renewable energy installation in Canada last year came out of Alberta. You know that renewables make up about 15% of Alberta's electricity profile now, and that's going to double over the next seven years. Kubi's been leading the pack 
since inception. And right now is a perfect time to get in touch with them, get a free quote, get the design going. So if you're on a farm, they can work in the winter on the ground. If they're going to be up on your roof, first thing in the spring, you'll see the team from Kubi Energy at kubienergy.ca. If the design or improvement you're looking for is, is more in your yard, front or back, whether it's a brand new house with that lame sod and that one lonely tree, you're looking to improve the setup or maybe looking for a complete overhaul in the place you've called home for years, Eden Landscaping has been leading the way in sustainable landscape design. Ask them about how they're attracting pollinators to people's yards, specific plants, design principles to make sure that the bees and butterflies and other nature's marvels are visiting your yard. It all starts with a consultation with Eden Landscaping. You'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And our friends at Athabasca University want to remind you that tens of thousands of Canadians every year trust their post-secondary experience to AU because it's flexible. Because you determine, as a student today, you the pace of your studies. Their world-class accredited online programs and courses offer the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. Click the Getting Started link at AthabascaU.ca to find out more about admission requirements, how to apply, financial supports that are available at Athabasca University. That's Canada's open university. We're hanging out with Daniel Sonef, Stephen Rates, and Chris Bruntlett talking about urban cycling and design on our live chat on YouTube. Shout out to all of you. Tony says, I do support bike lanes, even though I don't have a bike. Uh, but what I don't love is when the city puts them in places where parking is so limited. Uh, Bunny Slipper says, if I didn't have to drive all over the city to find decent places to buy food, <laughs> I'd be so happy. I'd love to have a neighborhood butcher, a neighborhood bakery. He says, I'd be on my bike all the time. Meantime, Cadmus Rex says, this city is under snow and ice for so many months a year. Bikes are not the be all and end all. It snows in other parts of the world where they've got a big bike infrastructure, doesn't it, Chris? We had this question last yeah, night. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I mean, you just need to look over to Montreal, I think. Uh, you know, tremendous cycling infrastructure network, cycling culture. Uh, but the difference there is they do maintain it through the winter. They are uh, prioritizing and acting in a proactive manner to de-ice and to... Uh, plow the the networks and if you want some European examples of course there are plenty in the Nordics where the temperature drops uh, quite low uh, Ulu Finland in the Arctic Circle have a 25% cycling modal share because yeah they've committed to cycling as a, a choice for its residents um, all year round and not just uh, thought of cycling as a, uh, a summertime activity so we can't use that as, as an excuse uh, because unfortunately that just means uh, yeah we don't even even try yeah yeah we have the winter cycling congress uh, conference coming up in february in february yeah, yeah um oh, which uh so you just had shifters uh video up there and he did a, a video with um a guy named pekka from olu and uh, they have a tremendous bike network there. And if you look at the snowpack on the bike lanes, it's not 100% cleared, which mm -hmm. I always think mm -hmm. is a very interesting. It's, a, it's controversial in, in Canada because we're very much about down to the bare pavement. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm excited to hear about um, more of their strategies for the Winter Cycling Congress. 
conference. Just huh. keep it's on Congress. It's Congress. a Congress. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Congress sounds so much more official than yeah. conference. I know. Congress. Congress. You almost expect the Congress to like rubber stamp something. Yes. And we, we all have to I abide by it. Uh, yeah. How about this TD says uh, people that continually complain about the hundred million dollars on bike lanes have no clue what they're complaining about. They're just parroting talking points from people that hate this city council. Uh, might be on to something there. Uh, Ken says my friend was commuting on his bike last year, got hit by a car. The driver stopped, looked, and then sped off. Uh, he commutes every day by bike. Uh, doesn't even own a car. Uh, and by the way, his property taxes are also paying for roads. Uh, that from Ken seems like that resonates with you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just think about all those comments coming in, and I think like some of them, I totally get where they're coming from. And uh, like one of that earliest one, I had a very visceral response to of like, well, there's not enough parking. There is enough parking. Like we set aside so much of our downtown to just providing surface parking lots. We have towers and towers full of parkades and parkades of parking. And so the option is available. And ultimately it's just, you have to pay for it. It's space that's set aside for you to utilize from time to time. And that space could be put to a higher and better use. And so there's a price that's going to be associated with that. So too bad. I don't know if that was Tony or I can't remember. His name, but yeah, just like I'm, Maybe I'm just turning into a Fox News host and I'm like, get over it. But, you know, it's like there are options available to you. You just have to find them. And maybe that's like better wayfinding for parking in the core. Maybe that's shifting the expectation of how fast you're going to be able to park or how close you're going to be able to park to your destination. Because the, the piece there is like, well, you might not be able to park right out front of where you want to go, but let's make the journey between your parking spot and your destination fun, beautiful like an enjoyable experience because ultimately we live in a city. We have, we have these opportunities for urban experiences. Let's make the most of them. So I let's like not just try to park in front your of your parking stall can to. be right out front. If you take your bike or a scooter. Oh, Oh my uh, God. That's so true. So true. <laughs> um, what's up with scooters winding up like in the river? You oh, know, we've yes. had a, kind of a bad habit with that. Don't we as a city? Yeah. Uh, I feel like Stephen Rates turning into a Fox news host on <laughs> yeah. real talk would be, is, is going to be newsworthy. Uh, Kimberly uh, joining us from Southern Alberta says there's a lot of crybabies in Calgary as well over designated bike lanes. Uh, now that they're here, people get used to them and more people are using them. Tracy says, what an interesting panel discussion. As somebody who walks downtown, I see increasing frustration and anger about bike lane design and cyclists still using sidewalks. A Galaxy Hunter says, I ride in Europe a ton, especially in the Netherlands. Terrific infrastructure there. I feel safe riding there, but not so much here. A lot of riders there and here, uh, but I think that we could have even more more, uh, says Galaxy Hunter. Um, Noob says, I'm going to the Netherlands for the first time next year to visit my retired parents. First generation Canadian here. Really looking forward uh, to seeing my and their history. Any suggestions for cool stuff to do in the Netherlands? <laughs> You're going to say rent a bike, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you cannot go to the Netherlands. But I always uh, emphasize, get out of Amsterdam. Amsterdam is uh, most people, unfortunately, who visit the Netherlands uh, don't leave a kilometer radius of Amsterdam city center. They visit the red light district. They visit visit the usual haunts. There's so many beautiful cities across the Netherlands. I'm lucky enough to live in Delft, uh, which I highly recommend. It's a little Amsterdam without all the tourists, uh, but Utrecht, uh, The Hague. Rotterdam is a, a fascinating example because it is a, a very American-feeling city. It was uh, destroyed during the Second World War, rebuilt as an American-style kind of uh, car-orientated city. 
but has really been uh, retrofit in recent years with grass tramways, with cycling infrastructure, with great public spaces. So it feels like a, an Edmonton or a Vancouver or a, a Melbourne, but it has all this great uh, cycling infrastructure. What's So you pay attention to and, and, and build models off of and advise cities all around the world. Uh, what's a city that maybe doesn't get a lot of press or doesn't get a lot of attention but is doing a really great job? Yeah, if you follow me on social media, you'll know I have a lot of love for Austin, Texas, because uh, the Dutch Cycling Embassy has been working with them for over a decade. Uh, a very unlikely candidate for a cycling city in uh, you know a southern sunbelt, sprawling uh, city in the heart of Texas. Uh, but over the past uh, 10 years, yeah, they're, they're building out a 650-kilometer network of cycling infrastructure. They're about to put $2 billion into a light rail system. Uh, and as they grow, they're growing immensely with a Tesla factory and Google relocating there. You're, they're using cycling and uh, alternative mobilities uh, as a, a, a tool to handle that growth, absorb that growth, and provide people with a really high quality of life. I'm just, by the way, I'm showing it on my screen. Uh, we can show everybody, if, if you just Google Chris Bruntlett Austin, you can see it looks, what's this? This is a presentation you did on their exactly. Bike Master Plan a while ago. Yeah, last year at the Velo City Congress, uh, the Global Cycling Congress, I did a Pecha Kucha style, yeah. rapid fire, 20 slides in 20 seconds per slide, telling Austin's story. And it's, uh, yeah, one that I think a lot of cities could emulate because uh, they focused on the short car journeys. They uh, were able to map where... Even in a sprawling place like uh, Austin, uh, half of the car journeys in that city were under five kilometers, perfectly capturable uh, by bicycle with the infrastructure in place. And so that's been their strategy to try and convert 15% of those short car journeys from car to bicycle. And uh, yeah, they've got the public on board. They've got the political class on board. They've got the business community on board. And uh, they are now three years away from completing that 650 kilometer network. Let's let's move this conversation in, in a different direction. Prompted this this audience, we say it's the most engaged audience in Canada. I love it. And Tracy is reminding us of something that you did mention out of the gates to your credit, Chris. She says, I noticed that this discussion to this point is assuming that everyone is able-bodied and that there are no disabilities. Um, I, I don't have a focused question here. Why don't we talk about that? Where, where, where does that awareness start? Why don't we talk in just a second about design? But where does that conversation need to start when we're talking about the design or the concept of, of how a community starts to plan? Yeah, this is something that always comes up. When you start talking about um, creating cycling infrastructure and, and potentially taking space away from cars, uh, potentially, uh, especially parking, uh, people hold up uh, people living with a disability as this amorphous blob that is, uh, needs their car um, to participate in society and move around the city. And uh, the statistic that I used last night in my presentation was it's in the United Kingdom, it's 60% six, of people with disabilities do not have access to a car versus 27% of the larger population. So this uh, idea of, of people with disabilities relying on their car is a little bit of a misnomer and a little bit of a myth. Um, but I always emphasize, yeah, we shouldn't be treating uh, people with physical disabilities as an amorphous blob. Uh, but one thing you do see in the Netherlands because of that inclusive and intuitive cycling infrastructure is this wide range of mobility devices uh, that are using that third space between the footpath and the roadway. Uh, tricycles, hand cycles, all kinds of adapted cycles, uh, and even uh, motorized wheelchairs. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, 
we're not saying it's either car or bike and you have to get on a bike, uh, but uh, we can uh, create more enabling environments uh, with the creation of this mobility infrastructure. It's not just cycling infrastructure, it's for so many other people to use as well. Um, we had uh, Bean Gill on the show a while ago, and, and Bean and her wheelie peeps, they've, they've had such a, a great debut of their series on CBC Jam, and, and Bean has been such an advocate for people with disabilities and, and talking about urban design, and even some of the, the small, like snow clearing, for example, comes up. And How do we do, generally speaking, as a society, uh, considering the needs of all people and integrating that into our design? Is, is It's not... I mean, is is it a relatively new principle? Are we are we still behind the curve on that? Like, how would you assess us honestly? It's not it's not a new concept, um, but I think that we don't consider all abilities as much as we should. And I think that one of the biggest indicators of that is our snow clearing policies. Um, we live in a winter city, and we still expect people to shovel their own driveways, um, their sidewalks themselves. Um, and this in the built environment creates linchpins for people with mobility needs. Um, if you are walking down a sidewalk and then you hit a giant snow hump because that's not that's not someone's property, it's the city's, but they're not going to clear an alley, that makes it really difficult for people to get around. So it's not just the design, but it's also how we govern. Yeah, like then coming up at uh, Edmonton City Council, there's um, uh, proposed changes to the snow clearing like implementation, like that implementation of policy. And they're considering like, de to my understanding, like delaying some of the snow clearing at uh, bus stops and that kind of thing. And like, that's just a, such a step in the wrong direction. Like we are eroding people's ability to get around our city if we uh, cut from snow clearing in that way. And uh, we were talking a bit about like cars trying to get around in the winter versus bikes trying to get around in the winter. It like a, a car, although it's not an, a person, it's not a human being, it's way more able-bodied. It's way more, it has such a greater capacity to move around in our city in the winter. And so even if you feel like your cul-de-sac isn't getting cleared very quickly, but the bike lane downtown is, that's because the bike lane downtown is serving a bunch of people who experience a vast amount of struggle trying to get around in winter. And so that needs to be prioritized to ensure that we all have closer to an equitable experience getting around in winter. Is it is it foolish that that I've waited for like 40 minutes to, to bring up public transportation, buses, trains? I mean, does that need to be part of this conversation, too? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I was asked last night, you know, my recommendations around this hundred million dollars. Uh, and one thing I, I spent some time addressing uh, because the Dutch do it remarkably well is is finding that synergy between cycling, micromobility and public transportation, uh, because uh, if we allow cycling or scooting or e-biking uh, to the station, we're suddenly creating a lot uh, or a much greater access to the station. More people are able to access the public transportation system uh, simply by providing uh, infrastructure networks that feed into the public transport, uh, secure, safe bike parking at uh, the train stations, and uh, yeah, and then a, potentially a shared or a rental bike at the end of the journey. So we're competing with the car, replacing the car, we're 
providing alternatives for the car for longer and longer distances with the understanding that cycling is only going to get you so far, three to five kilometers at the most. But if we put public transport in the middle of that cycle journey, uh, then suddenly you can get uh, across the city or even in between cities if the public transport choices are there. Uh, I, I'm curious, to, like the role that tech has played in all of this, and, and you mentioned the scooters, and I think that, like you know, um, like the Lime scooters or, or whatever, um, you do see a ton of people using them, and I wonder if that's maybe sort of like awakening some people to the like aha, like oh, you know what, I might use these more. It, it does make more sense if you if you live within 25 or 30 blocks from downtown to to use those. And and, and what about the advent of e-bikes? I, I mean, you know, I know that there's a price barrier for some people. People, but they're also removing barriers for a lot of people. Uh, the, the ease with which you can ride one of those things and fast yeah. uh, blows my mind. How much is tech playing a role? So I, I think it's an interesting question. I want to answer it in two modes. So I think that we have an idea that tech will save us. And that's a thing that I want to kind of caution in this discussion because even though like we talked you talked about this last night electric cars are coming online um it's still a car um it's it's not the technology that's going to save us but in relation to um like scooters these are definitely like the catalyst um modes for some people when they first came online in edmonton you kind of saw everybody jumping on them checking it out and i i think that it was that aha moment for a lot of people uh they realized how quickly you can get around um how you know permeable the city can actually be if you're on these little modes uh there's been some you know definitely concerns that we need to kind of address about how you ride and how fast you can go and where the scooters end up mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> um it's all something that's in the adjustment that we can work towards but uh in relation to e-bikes uh, again, we were chatting last night. One of the biggest um, new user groups are people over 65. And the yeah. e-bike uh, for that is very enabling. Um, they want to be able to go short distances, long distances, and having that electric cap- assist capability is helping get them just a little bit further. And yeah. if I can draw a little further on this point, like yeah. it's such a good example of how an experience is going to be so much more compelling to people in changing their mindset. Like I can be on this show and say, too bad, Tony, like figure it out for parking downtown. Tony. That Tony, <laughs> he, like I'm not going to change Tony's mind, but if Tony gets on uh, an e-bike or uh, Tony's kids scoot around the city, or I love the example from last night of the oil embargo, didn't that was probably harmful or hurt people at the time, but it was a great opportunity to see uh, or for people in the Netherlands to see how their streets could work differently, that they had over allocated all this space. And I really see an echo of that over COVID and people seeing yeah. road reallocations like expanded sidewalks and shared use paths um, as like such a great opportunity to enhance the livability of our uh, city. And so, yeah, that's why it like in this discussion, it's ultimately like this round table so much fun and we're having a lot of fun banter, but what is actually going to change people's minds at the end of the day is to create the experience for people to see the city a little bit differently and to do that we have to invest in infrastructure 100%. we have to create those options yeah, yeah. i mean just, some people are going to see the thumbnail for this episode and they're going to go next yeah because they're just <laughs> they're just 
not into it. They don't want to hear about bike lanes. They don't want their blood pressure to rise. But if somebody is adamantly against them and has listened this far to this point, we commend you. I want mm-hmm. people, you know, this is also an audience that's willing to stretch itself and challenge itself. And I bet you people will be inspired to try new things. I want, I want to revisit the tech conversation with you. I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine you saying it's a bad thing that people are having more options to get onto two wheels as opposed to behind the wheel of a car. Yeah, I, I think there was initially some skepticism around e-bikes in the cycling advocacy community, at least with some people. Why do you think? Uh, well, it's, some people see it as cheating. They see it as, uh, uh. yeah, uh, the purists. And, and I do not share that opinion at all. I'm a huge fan of electric bikes. The interesting thing about the Netherlands is, yeah, it's uh, per capita the biggest e-bike market in the world. They've embraced e-bikes more than any other country, despite the fact that it's flat as a pancake. <laughs> uh, and uh, what we're seeing there is, yeah, it's enabler. They're disproportionately used by women, by elderly people. They're not necessarily a speed enhancer. The average e-bike uh, users only traveling two or three kilometers an hour faster than a traditional bike, but they're a range extender. And they are, the average e-bike journey in the Netherlands is almost double that of a regular bike. So they're allowing people to cycle further, more frequently, replace those car journeys over longer and longer distances simply by providing a little bit of uh, electric assist on the pedals. Huh. Can I, I, go ahead, sorry. I was gonna say it also carry like pretty substantial loads. So uh, just another small shameless plug here, but uh, my husband who I own Art House Residential with rides an e-bike and we have a construction company. So he carries his tools. Like he rides it to site? To site. And it is <laughs> really? it is the funniest thing when you have an inspector or a trade show up and they're like, who's this guy? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the general contractor. That's and he's great. like, hi, it's me. And you know, he's got his, his tool bag, his propane bottle. Steel-toed Birkenstocks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a bit of an aha movement, especially when you're going from a couple of sites with a trade, you're like, okay, I'll beat you there. Yeah. And they're like, no way. Yeah. And then you show up and you're at least, you know, sometimes 10, 15 minutes earlier, but. You know, I've got beer league hockey on Wednesdays and a guy <laughs> showed up this Wednesday with a bag and two sticks riding a lime scooter. It was one of the <laughs> funniest things I've ever seen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those things where you're like, it, it kind of changes your perspective on like, well, what can I put on this? I thought for so long that it was just, you know, biking is just for whatever, for leisure. But then you start realizing exactly what you can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the uh, conclusion of every roundtable, and we're aware of uh, your, your time sensitivities here because you got to get your butt to the airport. Or we, we don't want you missing your flight, your transatlantic flight. But but we always like to wrap our conversations by asking each of our panelists to give us something to, to chew on, so, something to walk with, something to think about, kind of a closing statement, if you will. Uh, this is an opportunity to, to tie everything up nicely with a bow, make sure that we don't uh, ignore an important point. Um, and nobody ever wants to go first here. But Stephen, you look like you're up for it. Plus, you're an improviser. With yeah, fires, so. I, I would say don't do what I did today to Tony if you meet him in the street. No, Tony's uh, a she. And, and, oh, but, I'm no, but, sorry, Tony. But, but Tony has a reputation in our live chat of yeah. being very open-minded and progressive. Okay. So I, I don't want her to take too many shots Well, here. I apologize for misgendering Tony uh, initially. <laughs> but um, beyond that, like if somebody is uh, criticizing 
uh, like your openness to this, like listen to them and try to respond with how this can be positive. This can create more choice, how this can create a more fun city. That is like in those interactions where you run up against negativity, you know, throw positivity onto it. That's what Paths for People is all about. And if you want to get more involved with uh, advocacy or uh, just getting involved in your neighborhood, we're a great kind of place to go to learn how to do that a bit, how to get equipped with the right messages and that sort of thing. So you can find us on social, you can find us on fun little events that we might be running in your community. And I love that. And again, that's uh, pathsforpeople.org, right? Yes. Yep. If people want to check out the website. Uh, by the way, Tony did follow up like literally as you were talking. <laughs> oh. said, I said, I would love if this panel could help the city comms team, the communications team mm-hmm. on how to promote these bike lanes to better show how they can benefit the city and its citizens. Says there's so much good information on this round table here. A uh, good point as well from Jill, who says uh, pressure that public transit cost is, is recovered by users. Why are road costs recovered by vehicle fees instead of in property taxes? That's an interesting, yeah, maybe a conversation for another day on, on how we collect our, I mean, maybe maybe tolls. Uh, Jill, that could be an interesting one. Uh, nobody ever don't, wants don't to see say more tolls, taxes. The, uh, the 15 minute city people will jump all over. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The 15 minute city people, we did do an ep- for another day. We, we did yeah. do an episode on that. Uh, people could check out the 15 minute city, uh, conspiracy episode that we did. Um, uh, your closing remarks, so to speak, Danielle. Yeah. So if you'd like to have more conversations like this and other conversations about design, please sign up uh, for made, uh, join get a membership. It's only 20 bucks. Um, we put on design week every year. Uh, these, these conversations are, are really important. They're really inspiring and it's important to have as many voices uh, added to the fold as we can. And that's what made's about. So yeah, how was Design Week, by the way? All in? Did you oh, like? Amazing. Is it? I can tell your face is you're beaming. Yeah, it's it. Honestly, it's like it, it's not everything that May does, but it's one of our biggest programming um, throughout the year, and it it really gets people pumped up. This year, the theme was meld, so it was about getting people of different disciplines together. Um, you know, design is moving past this idea of just a single object output architecture. Um, clothing design, graphic design. It's about how the space is kind of in between those. How do we use design as a, a process, a way of thinking, a way of looking at some of these systemic issues and and trying to wrap our heads around them and provide iterative solutions. Yeah. And yeah. I've got, I've got so much respect for designers. It's just like, it's like, a, it's like another skill set. I know you'll probably say it can be taught, but it strikes me as one of those things that can't necessarily be taught. I think there's a certain, there's, it's a muscle it's a muscle like like any other skill and i think the the thing about it is you know it's one of those professions where people are like oh maybe i'm not a designer but it's once you start learning about it you start seeing it in the world around you like literally everything in this room has been designed minus the plants but they did it themselves yeah um (laughs) it's uh you know it's it's all around us it shapes our 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 minds our our health our perceptions um and we need to start looking in that in that capacity to really start answering some big questions so true and I love like loud, brash in your face design, but I also really love like subtle, quiet design where you don't even realize how it's impacting you. Yeah, I like that too because it's yeah. uh, it's it's the the sleeper design that you don't really sleeper design. I love that. Happening, That's my favorite category in all car shows as well. Best sleeper. I love that. Uh, you're like, did he really just invoke a car show yeah. wrapping up a cycling? <laughs> what the heck is going on here? Are, are, are there sleeper bikes? There are sleeper oh, bikes. Oh, totally, totally. Somebody was talking about their in the chat. Somebody talking about their three hundred dollar commuter bike. 
Like yeah. I see like the, what do you call it? Like the fixed gear, like, yeah, like single fixed, gear, yeah, yeah. fixed yeah. gear. I like yeah. there's even bike design these days. It oh, seems yeah. like oh, what's happened in Alpine skis. Remember mm-hmm. like skiing was super cool and then it wasn't cool because snowboarding was cool and then skiing all of a sudden became really cool again. And then snowblading was cool. Snowblading's cool. And I then, just aged myself. And now winter biking will be cool. But yeah. actually, get there. But yeah. actually, because you see these, yes. you see these fat tire bikes and these new bikes oh, and you're yeah. like, these are so cool. Yes. Yeah. And you don't need them. Like you can just have a cheap beater bike like me and it's cool. It's from the eighties. Yeah. A cool vibe Some to it. Some studded tires oh, go a long way. You're, you're there. You're there. Yeah. So there's just a whole world out there for winter biking and it's lots of fun, different designs within it. Yeah. By the way, don't think we didn't notice that both of you locals rode your bikes to yeah. the studio today. <laughs> don't think, course. don't think we didn't notice yeah. these two practice what they preach. Uh, Chris Brunlett, last word to you. Yeah, no pressure. Um, I've been yeah, reflecting on our conversation. I think we started out by framing this as a controversial topic, a contentious topic. Bike lanes, uh, cycling uh, is part of this larger culture war, but I would push back on that idea a little bit. I think um, we've got 5% on one side, 5% on the other side that are uh, arguing passionately, uh, and you've got this vast uh, amount of the population, 90% of people who uh, are busy living their lives. Uh, they perhaps intuitively understand that the way our cities are currently designed uh, is problematic. Um, and uh, I think COVID, if anything, showed us that these people will get out and walk and cycle and use their streets in different ways um, if we create the conditions for them. And we can't allow those angry arguments to derail uh, that end goal. Cycling infrastructure, creating uh, mobility choices, it's, it's not a nice to have anymore. It's a need to have. And cities are growing. Edmonton's going to add a million new residents. If every single one of those persons uh, owns and operates a car, then we've got some big problems. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I mean, all, all we do, is we just drop a couple extra bill, a couple extra billion, just, just widening the freeways even more, guys. We would just go to 12 it's lanes. That's not where this conversation Just widen, <laughs> widen, widen. Just sprawl the city and widen the freeways. Right, guys? That's how it all goes. Uh, in all seriousness... <laughs> <laughs> Steven's got anxiety right yeah, now. Yeah, that's good. Oh, God. I'll issue a clarificatory statement. I, clarify, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Um, yeah. We've actually just north of where we live um, seen they've just reopened uh, a part of the street that's been closed for several months and they've gone from kind of, it, it was never two lanes each way. It was kind of one lane and change. So it was mm-hmm. sort of didn't really serve that purpose anyway. But a total overhaul for, for, I guess, about six or seven blocks where they've gone now to one dedicated lane in each direction. The sidewalks are nice and oh, wide. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the landscaping, streetscaping, I guess you'd call it, that they've done yeah. is is really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it literally just opened, and I can already... I mean, the, the, the improvement mm-hmm. um, aesthetically is immediate, and I can't wait to see how that manifests itself into into more pedestrian traffic, better for businesses, yeah. I think, as well, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, gone is some of the street parking, for yeah. sure. Statistically proven to be better for businesses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is so, that true? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The city, the city actually is doing a pretty good job of this, of showing those statistics of how it's actually better for businesses. This is a big conversation on White Ave. And it's an important point. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get too much on this, but uh, you had the conversation last night about how the residents in... Was it in Delft? In the Hague. In the Hague, we're protesting. Um, But I mean, that was when they had these um, kind of 
small efforts when there wasn't a network. There was yeah. just these single modes. Um, it wasn't helping the businesses, but the idea of having a citywide network, connecting people from their house to these through these destinations and beyond, that's what really mm -hmm. works. And that's why the $100 million is so important. I love and it. And it's a good first step. We still got further to go. So oh, we absolutely tune do. in for more, tune in for more in the future. <laughs> well, let's do this again in a couple of years. Oh, and, absolutely. And, and, and yeah. revisit it and, yeah. and get up to speed. And, and, and by that point, two years from now, our budgets will be so huge that we can fly you back here. No problem, uh. Chris. We'll, we'll fly in first class. Uh, that, that was Stephen Rates that you just heard from Paths for People. Um, we've also been joined by Danielle Sonef uh, from MADE. And uh, of course, Chris Bruntlett from the Dutch Cycling Embassy to the three of you. Thank you for this conversation. Really, really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much. You fun. got it. And thank you for tuning into this edition of the Real Talk Roundtable. This roundtable is presented by Real Talk sponsors like our friends at Friesen Brothers. I want to remind you, it's a big weekend coming up at Friesen Brothers. The, the ones with the fresh market stores we're talking about. So we're shouting out to Edmonton in Rabbit Hill. Of course, you know that was the best grocery store in Canada back in 2022, winning the National Gold Award from the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers. But but it's not just there that you can check out October Feast. If you go to Friesen.com, their website, you'll see that also in Edmonton, yeah, Stony Plain, Hinton Hill, Peace River, Fort Saskatchewan, and... Drum Heller, one of Alberta's most underrated destinations. Drum Heller, shout out to you as well. Friesen Brothers presenting a German-inspired all-you-can-eat buffet. That's October 21st and 22nd, Saturday and Sunday of this week. $25 all-you-can-eat. Alberta beef roulade and pork schnitzel, Ivan sausage, chicken fricassee, German potato dumplings, garlic butter mashed potatoes, the full salad bar, you name it. $25 all-you-can-eat at October Feast at Friesen Brothers. We love welcoming people into this studio. You know this studio built by our friends at Complete Care Restoration. Now, of course, a lot of people know Complete Care Restoration because of the work that they've done in Alberta communities, helping people get back on their feet after fire and flood. But they do a whole lot more than that as well. If you go check out their website, completecarerestoration.ca, you'll see that they've got an entire team dedicated to construction and renovation. And with more and more building owners, with, with more and more folks that are maybe looking at empty office space right now and seeing an opportunity for residential development, densification, a different take on that brick and mortar investment that you've made, Complete Care Restoration is helping people turn those into new opportunities they provide above the norm levels of customer service and attention to their clients. We say that as a fact because we've experienced it full hand. You can give their team a call today. If you have a reno project you'd like to talk about, Complete Care Restoration at 780-454-0776. What a roundtable. Did, did you... Did you yeah. Change your mind on anything? Did you did you start Absolutely thinking not. about no? <laughs> do you own a bike? <laughs> I do own a bike, and uh, my partner does as well. And I would ride I would ride it to work if it was more convenient. But I live in Chappelle. Uh, anyone who knows where Chappelle is, it's say, right by Yaga Ridge, the golf course up there. Uh, it probably would be about a, a forty-five to an hour bike ride. Yeah. But the problem is, you've got the Henday there, you've got Gateway Boulevard, Big freeway. Yeah. So that's the way I usually take in my motorized vehicle. I would call it motorized vehicle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I've tried to map out how to get there, and it's it's. 
it's not impossible, but it's not feasible. It would, it would take me like I say it would take 45 to an hour if there was appropriate lanes on the main roads that I take to work. Sure. For me to ride my bike, but to go around and to go, I don't know, I guess I would have to go left up Rabbit Hill Road, past Freezing Bros, uh, down uh, into kind of, uh, you know, uh, what, what's the school there? I don't know. Off White don't know. Anyways, the, the point is it would take far too long and I would love to see a more... Uh, easy accessible route you know i saw a bunch of people uh commenting about their own personal experience in the chat we sure appreciate that by the way ken thanks for your five dollars on the super chat thanks for buying us a beer we really appreciate it uh ken has uh placed enough deposits in the super chat that ken will never buy a beer if he shows up to our studio (laughs) gotta get him a real talk snapback i think that's a great idea um if you want real talk merch that you can't buy in our merch store by the way support us on patreon and you'll see what i'm talking about we've just mailed out the first round of these special merch items to our patreon supporters to our patrons you know what it is if you got that email thanks to everybody that does that but a lot of people in the live chat talking about their personal experience and i saw some talking about how when they're on their bikes uh, when they're cycling into work or to their meetings they arrive in such a different mindset oh yeah right they're not they're not anxious or irritated or agitated because of you know being stuck in traffic or they missed that light or oh, yeah. somebody cut them off it's like they show up they've had fresh air they've had some exercise like i heard when danielle and steven showed up today at the studio i could hear them talking and laughing through the door before we even opened it and they all in biked such here. a good mood because they <laughs> biked here right? he, steven says well, i've been gulping fresh air for the last yeah. 20 minutes so of course they're in a good mood and i will say they all got here way earlier than normally our guests do who commute with uh motorized vehicles um for the friday roundtable so that's great but yeah i would love to see better accessible routes and when we're talking about the budget you know, hundred million or whatever. It's. I know we didn't mention it today, but we've mentioned it lots. It pales in comparison to what we're spending on roads and bridges and potholes oh, yeah. and all oh, those yeah. things, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a tough sell. It's a tough look to say a hundred million's nothing because it's not. It's not nothing. nothing. Uh, but if you look at the bigger picture yeah. of what we spend on infrastructure and, and who that benefits, it's certainly relevant. Steph says a seventy-five-year-old friend of hers in the Netherlands uses their e-bike or used their e-bike and trailer to move an oven from Ike. <laughs> what? And uh, shout out to whoever that is. And Greg says, uh, I'm just getting back from Germany. I was there for three weeks. I really noticed all the bikes and, and, and smaller cars and trains and very established buildings and, and, and infrastructure and says we just simply don't have that setup. I mean, yeah, and, and Europe's a little bit different as well, of course. You know, you take a look at, at like, um, you know, cycling infrastructure, but you also look at trains. I mean, the train network in Europe is 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 wild. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, you can They're be, in a, everything be right in a new there. country in like 45 minutes yeah. at some point. It's and uh, super fast trains, the monorail, monorail, monorail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gilles says Johnny's comment regarding sprawl and, and car oriented uh, infrastructure is why the topic's challenging and why zoning needs to change. Uh, Garth says uh, bike lanes are important for those who want to use that mode of travel, uh, but sacrificing already existing roads for bike lanes is a bit irritating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes change is hard and, and garth i'm not dismissing your comment because there's been times where i'm like really myself if i'm being honest with you but but also i think sometimes when when, when you see the plan come into action you go well, all right all right but it does take guts right it takes political will it takes guts and it takes conviction that that it's the right move mm-hmm. that it's the right play all right 
we've had a tradition on the show for a while, uh, an opportunity for you to, to basically blow off steam, get stuff off your chest and have everybody hear about it. But but things are changing a little bit around here. It's a new launch. It's a new brand today, and we're really excited about it. Every Friday, we give you a chance to get in touch with us and say what needs to be said, Real Talkers. We want to hear it. We want to see those hot takes. So welcome to episode one of The Flamethrower, presented by our friends at the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Of course, we had an interview yesterday with a spokesperson from Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. The interview went a little bit sideways, and a lot of you were in touch with the show, so this is a special edition of Trash Talk. This is your response to that interview on Thursday's episode of Real Talk. Adam says, Jess, boy, well, I've always enjoyed listening to your show and your take on most newsworthy events. I just couldn't get through that episode. Uh, your guest made over 20 false remarks in just the first 10 minutes of the show, and after stating that she doesn't support a two-state solution, made clear she supports the true genocide, the ethnic cleansing of the Jews that live in the state of Israel. Even the map that was shared of Palestinian land being stolen, shrinking, is a common piece of propaganda used by anti-Israel activists around the world. I would trust you would be interested in having someone on your show who could set the historical and factual record straight. That from Adam. This one from Cam, who says, I was happy to see your guest on the show that morning because the Palestinian perspective is sorely misunderstood in Canada. Please continue to invite guests that challenge you and the audience to broaden our perspectives. It was disheartening to see, though, says Cam, that the interview uh, degenerated in the way that it did. It was obviously cut short. Not really, Cam, he says, but I believe that you did not live up to your standard as an interviewer, Ryan. In particular, you interrupted her description of the daily violence inflicted on Palestinians by the Israeli occupation in order to repeat Israeli talking points about hostages taken by Hamas. The hostages are not what is causing Israel to commit countless atrocities over the past 12 days, nor are they the cause of the 75 years of occupation. It seems clear to me, says Cam, that your guest was doing her best to make it clear to you and us that no matter what Palestinians do, the violence of occupation won't stop. But you didn't seem to be interested in that message. Instead, you accused her of being anti-peace. That from Cam. Uh, She kind of is anti-peace, Cam, but I digress. Garth says, I've been actively trying to avoid diving into the commentary surrounding the Israel uh, conflict with Hamas, not out of apathy, but just due to the immense complexity of the situation. It's a topic laden with emotional and historical baggage, making it a challenging one to navigate. But I do make an effort to tune into shows covering this matter, recognizing the importance of staying informed about global events, even when they're as complex as this. Regarding Thursday's interview, I commend your approach in providing the space to express those views openly. A dialogue and discussion are essential in understanding different perspectives, but I must admit I was taken aback by her attempt to justify a terror attack while simultaneously representing a body that advocates for peace in the Middle East, says Garth. It highlights the intricate and often contradictory nature of the conflict. This one from Pam, who says, Ryan, how the hell did that guest wind up on your show? Did nobody vet her? How did you not know what she was going to say? Somebody fucked up big time. Do better and quit dropping the ball. That from Pam. Pam, we never know what people are going to say on the show until they say it. 
Clay says, Jespo, I've been willing to be challenged. I've been willing to be made uncomfortable by this show for a long time. I have no interest in echo chambers, but you have consistently displayed a complete unwillingness to challenge powerful institutions, whether it's government ministers, Take Back Alberta, or the police. I've seen you consistently soft-pedal guests as they lie and obfuscate right to your face. It often seems like you're trying to go easy on your guests so that you can have them back on the show. But then comes the Israel-Palestine conflict, and you prove that you're willing to peddle Israeli lies while also stopping just short of calling Palestinians terrorist sympathizers. He said, I listened as Charles Adler gleefully gobbled up and regurgitated Israeli propaganda while you did nothing to check his obvious lies. Worse, Adler appeared to dismiss, even embrace, war crimes against Palestinians. He bordered on Zionist bloodlust. He says, that didn't surprise me. In fact, I was nervous to turn on Real Talk this week knowing the horse shit that he would be stepping in. He does the same thing when it comes to defending police and law and order, but I expect more from you, says Clay. And then on Thursday's episode, suddenly your journalistic backbone appears. You tried to pester her into admitting that she and other Palestinian activists are terrorist sympathizers, all while she tried to contextualize systematic genocide that's been waged on her people for decades. It was the strong Longest pushback I've heard you deploy in a very long time, and I'm disappointed that you used that backbone to defend colonial power. Clay says, I hope you're able to reflect on the way that media, you included, has defended and amplified Israeli propaganda. Israel has a proven track record of lying about human rights abuses, and you fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. That from Clay. And this from Catalina, who says, Ryan, regarding Thursday's interview, contrary to your guest's interpretation on Twitter, I found you to be generous with the amount of time you gave her to express her opinions. Even when you challenged some of her assumptions, I felt like you handled her with kid gloves. Her assertion that Israeli soldiers committed mass murders on October 7th at the music festival, that's patently false. Hamas itself live-streamed the atrocities. The number of dead and the means in which they died has been corroborated by Reuters, The Guardian, and many other unimpeachable sources. Another gross misrepresentation of the facts presented on Thursday was about the bombing of the hospital in Gaza. She said Israel was responsible, that a thousand people had been killed. Again, this is false. Recent reporting by Julian Barnes in the New York Times on October 19th states that the estimated death toll is between 100 and 300, though that number will undoubtedly rise. Now, Catalina says any civilian death is tragic, but in this case, mounting evidence from U.S. intelligence indicates the device which exploded in the parking lot of the hospital came from a rocket launched by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, your guest was not entirely inaccurate. Her summary of the creation of the Zionist State of Israel and the colonization of the Palestinian people was bang on. She mentioned several times that citizens of the Gaza Strip have been subjugated to a starvation diet since 2007. That blockade has been labeled a humanitarian disaster. She sees Hamas as freedom fighters whose actions are justified because they're fighting colonialism. As you rightfully pointed out, the plight of our First Nations people and their desire to seek reparations for a myriad of injustices does not justify slaughter of people in Edmonton or anywhere in Canada, just as the valid struggle for Palestinian independence did not justify the obliteration of 1,300 or more Israeli citizens. That from Catalina. You can let us know what you think. There's more emails on that interview and we'll get to more of them as we continue our coverage of this tragedy in the Middle East and that'll happen next week and beyond though we'd love to see it as short as possible to state 
the obvious. You can send us your flamethrower message anytime by sending the email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The flamethrower is proudly presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Make it a great weekend, friends. Be good to one another. Let us know what you thought about the shows this week, and we'll see you right back here next week. Thanks for supporting Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Dubetti, Ahmed Ali, Randy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a Relay Project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.